Good morning. Please stand as we read through Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 26. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then, when fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by the son of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had, and they had, an, then, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with the righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas! Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus? who is called Christ. They said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Lord, as we look through this passage today, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would open our hearts, all of us, to what you have in your word for us today. That it would not be me speaking, but it would be you through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would draw us close to you today. 
that we would have softened hearts for your word. And Lord, that you would just use this for your honor and for your glory. In your name, amen. Please be seated. So this passage could be titled, The Irony of the Innocent and the Guilty. Let's look at each of the people involved in this passage and see what the Bible tells us of each of these people. The first group, the Jewish priests and elders. They were the ruling class of Jews and the ones to keep people straight concerning God's word and the law. Last week, we learned that these very priests, elders, and the high priest violated the very law that they were bound to uphold by the way that they conducted the Jewish trial. They were guilty of the law they were supposedly upholding. Jesus had already pronounced them as hypocrites in Matthew chapter 23. If we go to Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The crazy irony that the perfect Jesus Christ calls out and condemns the rightfully guilty priests and Jewish leaders, the very ones who are delivering Jesus as the guilty to be ex executed by the Romans. All this to keep them from, quote, violating the Passover and supposedly to keep them from having blood on their hands. Totally ironic. Next we have Jesus, the Christ, the one who was escorted into Jerusalem days earlier in chapter 21, verses 9 to 10, actually quote Psalms 118, 26. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now Jesus is the, the accused, the one on trial, the one who the Jewish high priest had condemned as worthy of death due to a false charge of blasphemy. Christ proclaimed in chapter 26, verse 64, he was God, which he is. But the high priest does not recognize nor acknowledge this fact and proclaims Jesus guilty in a completely improperly conducted Jewish trial that was in violation of, every, of the very law that the high priest was stating that Jesus had violated. The guilty declaring the innocent guilty. More irony. How did Jesus get there? The betrayer, Judas, lived with Christ. He followed as a disciple. He was a student for three years. Seeing the miraculous works, hearing the teaching, witness to everything Christ had done, bought off by the chief priests and elders with 30 pieces of silver. The betrayer, the guilty delivering up the innocent Jesus. How can this get any more ironic? It does. Then we see Pilate. He was the prefect of, of Judea to the emperor Tiberius, the Caesar of the Roman Empire. R.C. Sproul in his commentary of Matthew brings up the following. All four of the gospel writers tell us some, the same things. All, all four of the gospel writers tell us some things about Jesus' appearance before the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. However, none of the four give us a comprehensive record of that interchange that took place that day. 
When we consider all of these accounts, one fact becomes very clear. Pilate was concerned that Jesus might really be a ruler of some kind. Try to put yourselves in Pilate's sandals. He had been appointed by the emperor, of Tiberi the emperor Tiberius of Rome as the fifth Roman governor of Judea. And his administration lasted a long time. It lasted from AD 26 to AD 37. Within the Roman government, it was common practice. It was common knowledge that Judea was one of the most difficult provinces in which to maintain peace and order. In other words, the Jewish were an unusual resist, unusually resistive and rebellious group. For this reason, Judea was not a plum assignment at all. And for an ambitious Roman official, indeed, this assignment to Judea was almost a punishment. By the time of Jesus' trial, Pilate's tenure in Judea had stretched longer than was commonplace. And it seemed his career had plateaued. Unfortunately, he'd already been, he'd already irritated the emperor by dealing too harshly with the people. And in the near future, he's going to be called, recalled back to Rome in disgrace for his harsh response to a rebellion of Samaritans. Pilate was in a very difficult position. But don't be so sorry for Pilate. Pilate, by the accounts of the historians Philo and Josephus, was about as ruthless as they come. He would either negotiate peace or he would force peace. He forced peace in the region by brute, cunning force. He had been known to squelch insurrections by placing soldiers in plain clothes in the assemblies. And if they turned out in a way he disliked, the plainclothes soldiers would stab and beat the Jews until they ran and dispersed or they died. The accounts of these historians give us a somber light to this ruler. Here we have the guilty, blood-on-his-hands ruler now declaring this Jesus as innocent. Even his wife tries to convince Pilate to release the innocent Jesus. The irony continues. Finally, we have the crowd. It was Passover. Jerusalem was just packed with people there for the Passover. The same crowd that had welcomed Jesus as Christ, as Messiah, singing Hosanna days before. This fickle crowd, once proclaiming Jesus blessed, now crying, crucify him. Once again, the irony of it all. Let's jump back into Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. As we look at the beginning of the chapter, this, it is morning after the trial at the high priest's house. And the chief priests and the elders are conspiring again, plotting, planning, taking counsel against Jesus to put him to death, to kill him. Then it says they bound him and they delivered the word delivered means betrayed. He was delivered or betrayed and handed over to Pilate. Where have we heard this before? It was just a little before we see a prophecy by Jesus made days earlier in chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, 
We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered. That word again, betrayed. Over to the high priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus had told the disciples exactly what would happen. Last week we heard that he was quote-unquote tried by the high priest. Now we see the Jewish leaders turning him over to the Gentiles to do the deed that they could not do under God's law, nor were they allowed to do it under the Roman law. They wanted Jesus dead. This was their chance. Jesus is turned over to Pilate. Now we get a little sidebar. We see what is going on with Jesus, Judas. When Judas sees, which means he was there, he sees that Jesus was condemned, he runs back to the chief priests and elders and says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas had lived with Jesus. He knew that Christ had not sinned. Whether Judas thought that Christ would miraculously escape or be found innocent, the Bible says he changed his mind. R.C. Sproul in his commentary again says, Judas did not repent. He knew he had sinned, but he did not go to God for forgiveness and repent. We see true repentance in Psalms 51, how David repented after his multiple sins with Bathsheba. This is not what we see in Judas. Psalm 51 is read before by Rob, before I came up, is a record of David's repentance. Verses 10 through 12 are very well known as they are scripture that we regularly sing. But do we pay attention to the heart condition of David that these words come from? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Judas' heart, it wasn't changed. He was trying to clear his conscience his own way. But the chief priest and the elders said, What's that to us? See to it yourselves. <laughs> In modern language, so what? Deal with it. Judas's conscience was eating him up. He was always about the money, but not now. He throws that silver right on the floor and leaves. Judas has no hope. Though he has heard everything Jesus has taught, Judas has hope has no hope, even though he has seen all the miracles that Jesus has done. Judas has no hope, and he hangs himself. Matthew is the only gospel to give us this cause of death. Luke, in Acts, provides some additional details, but not very much more. Now the high priests and the elders have a problem. Actually, they had a problem when they gave the money to Judas in the first place. The 30 pieces of silver was blood money, guilty of blood. But they are believing that they are innocent. How much more ironic can it be? They had spent so much time trying to do every little law or try to look like they were 
<clears throat> that they had missed all the prophecy that was in the scriptures. Matthew quotes some of this prophecy in verse 9 and 10 from Jeremiah 32, 6 through 9, and Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. These actions had been foretold. The very actions that these priests and elders were doing. Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. We need to note Matthew's subtle but significant charge against the religious leaders here. He says the 30 pieces of silver were, quote, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced. 30 pieces of silver was the value the priests and the elders had placed on the value of Christ's life. The Christ, the Messiah, the great pearl of great price. He stood in their midst and they esteemed him as next to worthless. It's amazing the utter irony of how these people do not see But now in verses 11, Jesus is now before Pilate, the one with the power that the Jewish leaders needed to have Jesus put to death. They couldn't do it on their own. Pilate's first question, are you king of the Jews? Remember, Pilate was concerned about any possibility that Jesus was royalty of some kind that might start up an insurrection. Jesus' only reply recorded here in Matthew is, you have said so. Pilate was amazed at the, as the accusations were made that Jesus gave no answer. Yet this was fulfilling more prophecy from Isaiah 53, verse 7. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, <clears throat> and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now Pilate's got to think on his feet. Pilate, the Roman leader with blood already on his hands, is seeing that there is no case against Jesus. So he takes advantage of the tradition to appease the crowds to perform a release of a prisoner. He chooses a really bad guy. Mark tells us he was a robber and a murderer, an insurrectionist, as opposed to this Jesus that Pilate sees as innocent. And who is innocent? Surely the crowd will not want to release this robber and murderer, Barabbas. Besides, Pilate sees right through the chief priests and the, and the elders. He sees they are jealous of Jesus. To make this even more, more ironic, more irony, did you happen to know what Barabbas, his name, means in Aramaic? means son of the father, little s, little f, son of the father. Jesus is son of the father, big S, big F, the son of God, God the father.
Matthew was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he seems to almost be ridiculing this entire procession through the irony he is telling this history with. Now we have a quick entrance by Pilate's wife. She's a Roman. She's a Gentile woman, not respected by the Jewish men of the time, pleading with Pilate due to a dream that had told her that Jesus was a righteous, read innocent, that he was a righteous man. Yet the Pharisees had convinced that fickle crowd to ask that Barabbas be released. And when asked what to do with Jesus, who is called Christ, the whole crowd shouted, crucify him. Again, we have the guilty Pilate asking the crowd, why? What evil has he done? Pilate, of all people, sees Christ's innocence. But now the mob rule is taking over. Pilate is losing control of the situation. He needs to move this forward, but he's uncomfortable. He sees no fault in Jesus. Now he washes his hands as to symbolize that he's innocent of the blood of Jesus. More irony. The guilty Gentile leader who sees the innocent in Jesus, yet the pious Jewish leaders have stirred up the whole crowd to not only have Jesus crucified and to set Barabbas free, but they have frenzied the people to respond with, his blood be on, our, on us and on our children. Finally, in verse 26, we have that Jesus is scourged and delivered, that word again, betrayed, to be crucified. The Jewish leaders and people have not merely turned away from Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They have invoked a curse on themselves and their children too. The Jewish people, God's chosen nation, have rejected the very one, their Messiah, that they had been looking forward to for centuries. Yet Jesus Christ also came to save the Gentiles the non-Jews, you and me, everyone. That is the good news. That is the gospel. He came to save. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. Say, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The chief priests, the elders, the high priest Caiaphas all rejected Christ. They rejected him as Messiah. They placed their hope in the law, which they knew they couldn't keep. Judas, we see, he had no hope. He had seen and witnessed everything, but he would not repent. Pilate, 
He looked to absolve himself of the situation, as did his wife. Yet the mob rule overcame his better judgment, and he ordered the crucifixion. So what do we learn from all this? Who is king of your life? Are you the innocent or the guilty? Am I the innocent or the guilty? Who is king of my life? If you have already repented of your sin and have accepted Jesus Christ as king of your life, you see hope. Earlier we saw in Isaiah 53 where Christ is as a lamb being led to the slaughter. Revelations 5 tells us that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, now the lamb that was slain, who is now worthy, who has conquered and ransomed every tribe and tongue and nation and is establishing his kingdom, a kingdom of priests to our God to reign on the earth. In the coming weeks, Pastor Stephen will be preaching about the crucifixion and the death and the burial and the resurrection. But we see the connections here from the Old Testament. And then we also see some future revelations that God is sovereign. That Christ is the sovereign lamb who is worthy to be king. Matthew has continued the same theme through his gospel, that Jesus Christ is king. Pilate, I believe, had a glimpse of this when he asked Jesus if he was king of the Jews. Pilate was amazed at Christ's silence before his accusers. While not a saving belief, Pilate knew Jesus was different. He knew he was innocent. Behold the innocent lamb. We can be looking forward to Christ's eternal rule as described in Revelation chapter 5. In verses 11 and 12, we see the lamb that was slain has ransomed his people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And this is the response. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. If you look in Romans chapter 8, it tells us as believers in Christ, we will not be condemned. We have been made innocent by the blood of Christ. Romans 8 verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That righteous judge that we heard about in Psalm 50 has to be satisfied. When we repent and ask Jesus to be king of our lives, we no longer are condemned. We are made innocent by the blood of Christ. Yet while we are still in the flesh, 
That flesh is weak. We have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God's gift to seal us until he comes again so that we no longer walk in the flesh. We are tempted. We sin. We are challenged. But we have the Holy Spirit to help fight sin in our lives. He also prepares us for suffering and trials. Are we preparing to face what God has in store for us? If we look at verse 18 of Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Judas, he had no hope. But we, we who are in Christ, there is hope. We will face challenges, weakness, trials, tribulation, sickness, even death. But be encouraged. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, helps us. Again, in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And in verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, King Jesus, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. From this, we see when we repent and accept Christ is our Savior and King. We are innocent. No more condemnation. We are innocent due to Christ's perfect sacrifice. We have hope. What if you were here today and you've never accepted Christ as your King by repenting of your sin? What are you hoping in? Are you hoping that 
you have done enough good deeds? Are you thinking that God is love, so he loves me and he wouldn't send me to hell? We're told in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our sinful nature has to be condemned. It has condemned us to death. Without Christ, we are condemned. So because of God's perfect justice, our hope cannot be just wishful thinking. We need to see God for who he truly is. Perfect love, yet perfectly just. Sin deserves death. He loves us, but our only hope is to follow his plan, not our plan, his plan, for, by repenting and accepting Jesus' gift, his free gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because of that free gift, there is nothing that we can do for ourselves. All our righteousness is as filthy rags, according to Isaiah chapter 64. So to have hope, it is in Christ's free gift of salvation. When we accept that free gift and repent from our sins, we are given the Holy Spirit, not only to give us hope, but with that hope comes peace and joy. Romans 15, 13 tells us, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. When we follow Christ because of his living the perfect life, by his willingly going to the cross to pay our debt to God for our sins, then we have hope. We have hope through the Holy Spirit. When the people in Jerusalem, following Pentecost, heard this good news, they heard the gospel, they responded in this way in Acts chapter 2. Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Will you repent today? And accept King Jesus, the perfect Lamb, the perfect Lamb of God that was slain for you and for me? Do you want to have hope that Jesus did not have, Judas did not have? Please do not leave today without asking Christ to be King of your life. If you don't fully understand it, ask someone here that does know. They'll be happy to share it with you. As we transition to our time of the celebration of communion, Remember the words of King David from Psalm 51 as he re was repenting of his sin with Bathsheba. In Psalm 51, may this be our prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Amen.